Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life led tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four and the letter U com to sign up for your 30 day free trial to get back to what you said about you know setting up meeting times what i found with the podcast and that's really surprising to me is that pretty much anyone i know from germany and i kept inviting them on my network here on the podcast they're actually the ones who flake at the last second so literally they go through the whole process and they'll be set up an appointment and we set up the meeting and we talk about how to do this on google meet and they confirm everything And then literally 10 minutes before the podcast, and basically the only ones who did this were all Germans. Really? So I have people from India, people from anywhere on the planet, mostly from the US, obviously. But it's only the Germans who don't cancel at all, right? They, they, that's very un-German. They don't cancel, but they just, they don't, they don't initiate the call. And they sent me an email two days later and say, oh, by the way, sorry, I couldn't make it. Can we reschedule? So, which is very un-German. So something is going on with the, I don't know if it's the virtual meetings or if it's uh, the, the podcast thing. It, it just doesn't work with people in Germany. I, I literally don't know what it is. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I have Europeans because I had a bunch yeah. of people um, from France and it was never an issue. Yeah, because I, I already changed the date twice. I was obviously uh, quite committed to not change it another time. Well, I realize you're very busy, so, so um, that's that's a given. Anyways, but we you we know each other for quite some time, so we worked together uh, 20 years ago at a company called Neutron, which was basically my first startup. I guess it was also your first startup, Definitely. and uh, we worked together um, setting up the uh, IT infrastructure, but also the development process for the company. And since then, you've done a couple of different things. So you, uh, and that's really interesting to me, you moved uh, to Asia, you moved to Hong Kong, um, as far as I know. And then you also had a bunch of opportunities. I think you worked with Cathay before, and then there was another bank I think you worked before. Maybe I, I, I get this wrong, so hopefully you can clear this up. And uh, obviously, I want you to illuminate that a little bit, uh, tell us a little more about it, and also, Maybe while you do this, uh, give me an idea on why you did this, right? What was the core motivation for you um, to kind of go out there, um, uh, 
different than the place you grew up. And I grew up in the same city, so as far as I know. Um, we both grew up in Dresden. What was kind of your motivation to go on that journey? Okay. Um, so yeah, maybe to get this started, yes. Um, you, as, as you said, right, like we both, we both worked together pretty exciting times. Let me just recollect my thoughts. Um, I guess my 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 travel park uh, started even earlier than Neutron. Uh, kind of in university. I mean, everyone knows university life, right? Like you know, you you try to mix your 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 your, your school endeavors with uh, your non-school endeavors, and uh, at some stage, I felt like something is missing, and I spent quite a lot of time trying to sort out how to spend. Some time outside, uh, like like uh, abroad, um, hadn't really traveled until then. That was like, when was that? Like two thousand or nineteen ninety nine? Yeah, those were the days, Meg. I know, I know, I know. Actually, it's all, like it's nineteen ninety nine. Even beyond, even beyond the days coming from East Germany, that's yeah. that was even more interesting times before then. But anyway, so I ended up in in. In Malaysia and in in the US uh, uh, for a year, um, which was before Neutron, and uh, I guess when I came back from from these two trips, uh, so I went as I said Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, half a year, did an intern job, and uh, then in um, Cupertino, uh, uh, in in California, where I also spent half a year working for Infineon, and when I came back, uh, my perspective had quite changed, so I. I came back. I was working here in a in a in a in in the local in the local fab in in, in Finian, and I I felt like I wanted to do something else. I got I got Jan. You remember Jan? Jan uh, got me into Neutron. Jan uh, Yes, 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 yes. Of course, yeah. So um, and um, yeah, and that was that was like besides the job that I have right now, probably the job that I enjoyed most in my life. Um, and as you know, right, we had uh, big plans. Neutron is obviously still existent, right, which means it's it, it has been quite sustainable and quite stable. But there was this whole opportunity of going uh, abroad with Neutron itself, right, um, uh, Singapore and so on. And uh, But at some stage, I realized that um, I spent five years there and I was like, okay, um, I, I had a lot of, there, there was a lot of stuff that came out for me. Um, but but I felt like um, it's not going to be, let's say, that kind of hockey stick that maybe uh, um, people dreaming of, or so. So I thought, like, okay, well, how can I how can I how can I combine my 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 hunger for travel with um, with my life, right? With my with my with my plan, right? And uh, and uh, my decision was to to try to apply for uh, skilled migration to to Australia, um, so that I could combine like the professional side. I not not like a work and travel program for which I was a little bit too old by then. Um, so yeah, so I, I I ran through this process, which is very painful for like one and a half years or fifteen months or something like that. And then eventually, when the when the when the letter came what's, through, what's, what's painful about it? About that, is it the particular visa for Australia? I don't know much about it. Yeah, so Australia, they are, they are, obviously they are, they are quite restrictive in terms of their borders, as we know. 
um, but they're also quite interested in getting skills in, but they make it they make it relatively hard, right? So you have to run through uh, a lot of screenings, and you have to basically you have to provide everything about your university life and and what was before then. So as I said, it took like almost yeah 16, 17 months, right? Uh, as a long process, costs a lot of money, and um, yeah. So so I'm not the I'm not enjoying these kind of processes so but anyway um eventually it came through and then i and then i yeah i sorted everything out of eckart and then um which was my boss at that time and then um off i went uh basically going to australia um you said i i i, I didn't go straight to hong kong actually i did go to hong kong because i stopped on the way over in hong kong which was um which was also quite interesting traveling around China for a while and Tibet and so on. Um, but then eventually I made it to Australia. That was in 2005. And then um, I, I stayed there for two years, uh, came back to Germany. And then I actually went to Hong Kong for good. As you said, like uh, starting to work for Cathay, Cathay Pacific, the local airline. Yeah, that's that's kind of how how it went, how I got, how I ended up here, where I'm still am, where I still am. Yeah. Well, we know Hong Kong has been kind of a hotspot politically the last couple of years. And um, it, it's always been this this lovely melting pot of British culture and Chinese culture. And I I found it, it it's always super interesting to be in Hong Kong, but on the other hand, I always um, dreaded it because I, I had that impression that it's just too overwhelming. Like there's, there's too much going on. It's like a New York City, but it's in way, way less space. And it kind of overwhelmed me. Um, and I felt stressed out just because I always had these layovers. I've been flying on Cathay a lot, uh, usually the destinations outside of Asia. And what happens happened to me a lot is that I have a uh, 16 hours in Hong Kong. You know, you arrive from the West Coast, you're at 6 a.m. and then you leave at midnight and you're jet lagged, but not necessarily in a bad way. But I mean, I love going to Hong Kong, but I always felt like it's a city that really, it, it, it takes everything you've got. And um, it, it you you are under a more competitive pressure than pretty much anywhere else. That's, that's how I always felt. So it's kind of like in New York City, but it's on steroids. Um, depending probably on, on what you do specifically. Um, how, how would you describe Hong Kong? How, how does it um, appear to you on, on an everyday basis? Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a big question. And um, first of all, um, what, 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 what you say, I, I guess I can definitely, I definitely know what you mean by what you say, because if I try to, I've, I've been now in Hong Kong for 11 years. And uh, of course, I, I think about that time quite often, and I try to remember how it was when I got here the first time, because my 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 view has definitely changed, and I I still remember and I st still cherish these these first five days, when um, my my girlfriend now wife and me were basically running through Hong Kong and basically picking all of that stuff up that you just mentioned, right? Whether it's uh, whether it's food, whether it's shopping, whether it's just the sheer amount of people and the density and so on, right? But of course now, after 11 years, I live on an island. So I'm actually, we keep saying we don't live in Hong Kong, we live in Lantau, which is uh, the biggest island in Hong Kong. And uh, obviously my view has changed. Now you kind of know which places to avoid, when, right, where to go, where is it quiet, where is it not quiet, and so on. But I, 
but I definitely agree with you. There's there's quite a normal level of competition between uh, 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 Hong Kong and Singapore here in in the region, and uh, a lot of my friends have either moved from Singapore to Hong Kong or from Hong Kong to Singapore. It's quite frequent, and I always say I would never ever do that, just because I find personally I find Singapore pretty boring compared to Hong Kong, right? Like this little edginess, dirtiness, and so on. I don't think I see that in Singapore, and maybe you see it in other Asian cities, but uh, Hong Kong is pretty, Hong Kong is a pretty good mix of, uh, of on the one hand, high tech, shopping, marketing, all of this kind of stuff, right? Like first world, but then also the, 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 the Asian underbelly, put it this way. So yeah, it yeah, takes a lot, I, I, it gives a lot. I, I fully agree. It, I always felt the Hong Kong is way more, it's it's true to its heart, and it it shows you more. Like the U.S., I've always felt it's a place that is very honest about what it about what it wants to be, and and it's very often very dirty, and it's not perfect, and there's terrible infrastructure, and the buildings look like well, an architect definitely didn't have a hand in building them. And Singapore is the opposite, right? It's like a state socialism that has actually taken off and. Everything is pretty and manicured, and there's plants uh, that that are perfectly straight. And um, it, it seems like whenever you come back, they they just they just grow even more straight. So it's there's something um, about that um, randomness, and maybe even a little bit of crime that you get. I always feel like something is weird in Asia that you get so little crime. At some point, you know, you need you need a little bit of crime to just makes things interesting. You need nobody wants criminals that that commit violent crimes. But there is a level of, of crime in terms of risk-taking that is probably required for a society. I always feel in many places in Asia that, that it's subdued so much. Not Hong Kong, that's certainly not the problem there. But it's subdued so much that I felt like the whole society, maybe, maybe it's something I don't see because I don't have the eyes for it. Maybe it does happen somewhere. Um, but when I go through, say, many neighborhoods in Seoul and then talk to policemen, and they tell me they don't have a weapon, in the first place and i said well that's you know most of europe doesn't have weapons but the last time they arrested someone is like three years ago but these people are actually in the middle of that neighborhood right they're not lazy and just don't care they're not corrupt it's just there's nobody who commits a crime to to even to even arrest so i always felt that's that's a bit of a problem in asia and in hong kong has steered away from this this british british heritage um Hong Kong has changed to uh, maybe saw this the last two years because it's kind of been taken over by china right and uh we from from the US feel it's like it was a straight takeover. It might you might see it differently as a local. What do you think happened with this so-called takeover? Do you feel like things on the ground in Hong Kong are actually affected, or it is something that's only if you look at it from state level really makes a difference? It's um yeah um I mean. Let me let me put it this way. For me personally, for me personally, Hong Kong. I know uh, one country, two systems. Uh, that's the that's the statement, right? But at the at the very end of the day, uh, Hong Kong is part of China, right? So um, that's that basically was declared when 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 the handover happened from 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 the UK, from the British Empire to, to the to China, right? And and every everyone knew that within fifty years time, uh, Hong Kong would be fully 
embedded into China, right? Um, and what's now happening is kind of this clash, in my opinion, that clash of the government who, who wants to go along this line, right? And wants to see this line through uh, versus the the people of Hong Kong or like the, 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 the population of Hong Kong, right? Who is not, who is, I guess, sees themselves as still with the heritage, right? So, um, so it's a it's a complicated topic because I feel personally I feel as a guest here, right? Clearly, I don't have not nearly as much insight into any of that than any other local, right? Of course, you can feel the tension, and you 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 do you do see it, but it's but yeah, it's a it's a I, it's a topic where I feel like you you cannot really win. Uh, no matter what you say, right? Because I mean, we are both from East Germany, right? We we know what some of these um, um, cultures are like, right? And we obviously fully appreciate uh, what I mean. I at least, and I guess you too, uh, appreciate uh, what happened when when the reunification happened, and that feels like the basically kind of the process in reverse. And uh, so I'm, I can. I'm glad you say that. I'm glad you say that. I see it exactly the same way. And it, it, there is something. It's a bit more subtle, I feel, than than what we were used to when we were grew up as children. Um, in Eastern Germany, was pretty much structured like the Soviet Union, and and had all its its pros and cons. I consider. Um, I saw more cons than pros, but you know, people might have a different opinion about that. Uh, I know my parents saw more of the pros um, of. Eastern Germany than the cons, which uh, looking back really surprises me. But what, what I think happened with China is that it really pulled off this state-sponsored um, corporate capitalism and it, it, it seems to bear fruit, like it seems to act, actually create so much money and influence that it's on a level that people were not expecting 20 years ago. And I, I think what people expected in 1997 is that you know, by the time it's 2047, then China is going to be basically looking like Taiwan and also is going to behave like Taiwan. So it's going to be like any other democracy we knew or any other country that gets richer on a, on a, on a yearly basis usually becomes a democracy and kind of joins this club of democracies with similar opinions. And you know, Germany obviously is slightly different than France, but seen from a little bit further away, they all seem to have the same goals in order to make their citizens happy. Something happened with China that this, and everyone expected this, it didn't really work out that way, right? So it, 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 it kind of found this, this in-between, but being on a communist side, but making as much money as anyone else, if not more, um, depending, on, depending on what sector they went into. They still have trouble with semiconductors and certain industries that have you know, a higher level of specialization, but this might be gone in a couple of years from now, and they might actually have an advantage there too. And I think this is why, why everyone is so freaking out right now, um, that you expect something to be, and then for a while it really worked that way. Um, and they say Hong Kong should have rebelled much earlier or much later. It kind of got the timing completely wrong, like all the protests, people say this is something should have done early on when, when China, which still was not in the stronger position, it would have probably get them better protection for the independence, or much later, you know, maybe 10, 15 years from now when there's a and, and maybe a different global viewpoint on China, so to speak. But I find it really interesting that, and that's, I think, one of the, the positives about China to an extent is that they, 
they, they solidified their political model and created a very efficient economy, at least from the outside, right? We don't know how sustainable it is and if it will be the same in 20 years from now. But it is pretty stunning that 20 years ago, the difference between Hong Kong and Shanghai was massive, right? It was a really poor place, looked like the Soviet Union, and then there's Hong Kong, which looked like, looked like Hong Kong. But now, unless you know the subtleties and you really are, um, I mean, there is still the service industry, but say outside the service industry, these two places look very, very similar. And that's not an accident, right? It was designed Shanghai after Hong Kong. Do you, do you feel like when you go to mainland China, there's a, you feel a huge difference or when you just cross the border, things are very similar to Hong Kong? I have to say that uh, that I haven't I haven't really been traveling in in China for quite a long time. Uh, so my last my my last trips uh, to China were all for 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 work uh, uh, business wise. So basically, like two days uh, typically into Shanghai, mostly into hotel and so on. So I guess my my my. My my comparison is a little bit rusty, but um, but I think uh, it is it is you're you're right. Uh, it is uh, definitely converging. If you look at just if you are out on the street, right, and you look into into shops and 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 people and how everyone is dressed and how everyone behaves and so on, right. So yes, it's definitely converging. Obviously, um, language is quite different. I. I'm quite embarrassed to say that I don't really speak Chinese or Canto, which is the local um, the local uh, uh, language here in in Hong Kong. So I so that obviously makes things a little bit different um, when when I go to China in terms of just communication and so on. But um, but yeah, on the on the surface, um, I, I think I, I concur with what you said. Right, it is it is coming together, especially Shanghai and Hong Kong. Yeah, it's, I went to 2019. I went to a couple of secondary cities in China. I went to Jinan and Fuzhou and uh, uh, Wuhan, obviously. And that was a, a couple of months before the um, alleged virus outbreak there, or the first initial outbreak. And I thought these the, these cities, minus the service industry, which doesn't really exist. That means restaurants don't really exist. They do exist, but it's it's a very small selection of what what, what they offer. They are super modern cities, especially Wuhan. Um, when you compare it to New York City, for instance, it's it's it puts New York City to shame. Um, there's there's amazing infrastructure. Um, the 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 way public infrastructure has been built up, but also roads have been built up. The the, the way skyscrapers have been uh, coming up, it's pretty amazing. And they still have parks, and it's very pretty. Um, so I was I was duly impressed um, by you know Wuhan is still a secondary city. Maybe it's moving its status now uh, towards a primary city. So I thought that's pretty pretty cool. It kind of looks like a Singapore, but a little more gray skies. But even those weren't that terrible when I went. Uh, some of the air pollution has gotten much better, at least the last few years, and probably also now. Then so much stuff has been shut down. I I want to move our topic a little bit because I know talking about China and the the difference the differences with Hong Kong can be very sensitive. Um, when you joined Cathay, did you feel it was a it was a Chinese organization because it's kind of half-owned or there's a, there's a big shareholder, which is um, Air China. Or did you feel it was kind of an Australian organization where it came from, right? The original founders were Australian and then they came to Hong Kong. Where did you feel was the real DNA of the organization? 
actually, I think the the the, the roots of of, of Cathay, but maybe I'm really getting this wrong, uh, are more like British, or let's say the way I felt when I came in was definitely British. Um, so there's this big conglomerate called Wire, um, which basically has, they have their hands in, in everything, right? And, and, and Cathay is just one tiny little part of Swire, and Swire is, is located in London. Um, so, so um, yeah, definitely I didn't feel Cathay to be like a local Chinese company, but actually a, a Western company. Um, so if you look at the, the management level, um, that has changed by now, but uh, back then, uh, very European, typical, um, yeah, let's say white old guys. Um, and um, they have their own kind of management training kind of funnel where people get come in uh, as, as, as graduates and then they're basically being trained to ultimately be general managers or vice presidents or whatever. Um, so there's this extra training program, which also sounds very elite schoolish, uh, put it this way. So yeah, definitely not a local feel from a management perspective and uh, the main language or the, the, the official language is English. Um, lots of um, uh, uh, expat pilots who are very proud of the level of uh, of training and safety and so on that 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 cafe applies in their programs right so yeah i i, I felt like it is like truly british uk heritage yeah i just looked it up um and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm cheating a little bit here yeah. <laughs> I, I looked at wikipedia and apparently one of the founder founders was australian one was american and they were originally um headquartered in shanghai for quite some time all right okay. and it must have been in 1934, so that was pre World War Two. So things were quite different at the part at that point of time. Um, but the, the biggest shareholder is Fire, as you said, and that is a British company. Mm -hmm. So I think that that might have moved moved over time, um, mm -hmm. which influenced actually Ron. Um, when you when you got to Cafe, um, you know I get, I know Cafe is one of my favorite airlines simply because of their excellent business class products and also. Because they're part of one world, so they they um, relatively easy, um, easily accessible with the US based mileage programs, for instance. Um, when you when you first arrived at Cathay and um, looking at the IT infrastructure, what was like the what, what was your role and what was like the first thing you noticed there? So, to 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 provide some more context and background here, um, sure. So at Time at that time, I as I as I briefly said before, um, my my wife and myself we had moved back to Germany uh, after Australia. Um, I got into consulting in Germany. That was around the the, the financial crisis that was uh, in in two thousand eight. So not a very good time uh, to be working in consulting. And um, anyway, long long story short was that. Um, our daughter was born, our first child was born, and I was kind of very keen to get out of this industry where you spend a lot of time in planes and you're not always at home. Um, and um, at the same time, we also, again, the travel bug, we decided uh, that uh, we would use uh, the quite uh, exhaustive or, or pretty good um, um, 
par parental uh, maternity leave uh, uh, regulations in Germany to actually spend four months going back to Australia with our three months old daughter and to basically drive around all over um, uh, uh, Western Australia. And uh, in this context, I wanted to hook up with a friend who, who I used to work before with in, 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 in Sydney. And, uh, and he said to me, actually, we, we can't catch up because he's now in, in Hong Kong and he's working for Cathay Pacific, setting up an enterprise architecture team. So that's my job, that's, my, that's what I do, um, architecture, which is essentially the kind of the macro structures of an IT system. Um, and he was very keen to get me over to Hong Kong as part of this newly established team. Uh, and, and anyway, that's ultimately what happened. Um, uh, we decided pretty quickly, did a quick visit here in Hong Kong. They actually flew us over, being an airline, uh, so we could look at everything. And then in 2010, I, I made the move and my, my family uh, uh, five months later. But anyway, the point is that um, I was coming in with this background of uh, a big transformation project in, in, in Cathay Pacific. Uh, and, and this former colleague of mine was actually hired to drive part of it. So I felt quite, um, quite energized by, by this whole idea, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big company. It's like, I think, uh, 25,000 people or so, at least it used to be. And the IT department, 700 people. Uh, much much bigger than what I had seen before. So everything, every I, I was still relatively fresh, and 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 everything was pretty um, um, overwhelming. I have to say. So yeah, I, I, I did. I can, I can imagine, yeah. but when you, when the way I know IT infrastructure, and uh, you know, you remember that at the time the Neutron we sold um, a procurement software to um, tier one, tier two automotive suppliers. So those were the companies that would actually deliver systems to, to, um, to automobile, automotive manufacturers, OEMs so-called in, in Germany. And what we realized is that it's, their IT infrastructure isn't necessarily what you would expect, say, at Google. So things are a couple of years behind, let's put it this way. And when you think of airlines, we know that they um, have have integrated with GDS systems that are often um, 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, then at some point they put a website there which you know, creates reservations and then interfaces with the GDS. We're really, really, I'm trying to keep it really simple. It's probably way more complicated. And then there's a, there's a ton of subsystems that, that came over the years um, that kind of were kept, kept alone. Um, and there was, a, there was an interface, there was an API and uh, at some point, you know, it has to be extended because you wanted to do a little more um, than what the, the initial interface suggested. So when I think of IT infrastructure, I think of a mess of tons and tons of old software that partially is not even something you build or that's, that's, that's completely um, in, in someone else's hands. You can't even um, you can't do much without, with it. Um, it's often licensed. Um, it, it goes through... Um, Computer structures, um, hosting structures that are much older than what you what you would build today, and it seems from the outset at least a complete mess. Um, I noticed from American airlines 
who was the initial investor in, in, in Sabre, um, the reservation system. And then they kind of sold their stake, it went um, IPO, and then they had trouble buying it back. What happens now, you make a reservation on American Airlines, and this, for instance, never tickets. It tickets 15 days later. And you're like, how is that even possible? So you, so you, so you have something that should be working in real time because people want to fly, right? So tickets are needed in order to fly, not just a reservation, but it somehow never happens. I mean, it does eventually happen and there's some kind of priority queues and it's gotten really complicated. I always felt airlines are an extreme challenge because so much IT infrastructure is, is really old and the, the new airlines, the discount airlines, they mostly started in the late 90s and said, we throw all of this out. We basically don't pay affiliates to travel agents. We don't, we don't work with any of the legacy systems. We just start afresh and have a website and just build a couple of backend systems. Um, how, how did it um, work at Cathay? Were they more modern? Yes, you 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 bring up a lot of um, old 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 memories uh, from from that day when I joined. Actually, um, you you're absolutely right. Uh, airlines are probably, if you compare it across industries, airlines are definitely and were definitely at the end of the train. Let let's put it this way, right? So when I when I actually joined Cathay, um, there there are two there are typically two main systems in an airline. Right, that are basically the 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 the, the core systems that are basically critical, super critical. Right, one is um, the uh, reservation system, um, where basically you put your bookings in. Right, and then the other one is the departure control system, which is when you actually check in and then basically, like like you know, the the passenger lists are are created and and, and all of that. And, and obviously these two kind of systems, they are very intrinsically linked, but at the same time, they're also, they're also massive and old. And when I joined, we, we were still running these systems on a mainframe. So Cathay was still running on a mainframe, not even on Amadeus yet, right, as the, the, the largest EDS. And in fact, one of the biggest projects that, uh, that, that our team was uh, responsible for amongst other teams, was actually the migration to Amadeus uh, from these mainframe systems, which I, I forgot the numbers, but it took like um, seven years or so for first yeah. reservation system. So you can imagine that's like that 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 was the, the biggest ever IT project that that Cathay and probably any kind of airline who went through this process could could ever do. And uh, as you said, because it's so essential and it's so connected to everything right so that's like a massive massive uh, integration kind of nightmare in terms of testing in terms of third parties and so on right and obviously there are passengers on the other side right like if, if, if that breaks down then then you have a lot of problems so yeah i mean uh, definitely uh but but again right this was the exciting part right to basically take something uh, that that is pretty much stuck in the old ages, especially if you come from a kind of software as a service company, like uh, what we did before. And then to get into this, which is a two levels of magnitude higher scale, but also two levels of magnitude older. So that's, um, for me, I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. It's all about complexity and basically getting, getting into the depths of it and then solving it in a nice way. So yeah, that's what I enjoy. I think society owes you because it sounds, it sounds like something that definitely has to be done. And a lot of airlines seem to push this out um, as much as they can. Um, 
And uh, I know that a couple of different airlines switched around from Sabre to Armadeos. Maybe they had a they had this done 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 the switch before, so they kind of knew what they were into and they know the APIs and all was going on. But um, I remember Singapore Airlines, which is has at least that that image as as very well run, and they switched um, to Amadeus or away from Amadeus, I think four or five years ago. And it, it only took them a weekend, I mean, in order to go live, right? So they shut down everything for like a weekend and then you could make bookings again, which still sounds terrible. Um, I remember the numbers before COVID hit, the uh, websites in the US, the airline websites, many of them would make about a hundred million dollars in sales every day. So we, we think of airlines, okay, they're big companies, but the numbers and the bookings involved are massive, right? So if you, you say $100, $200 is the average ticket, that's a lot of individual transactions that you better not go get wrong, right? And there's payment systems in the background and there's lots of different payment systems. And airlines always felt there, they need to know more about payment, it seems. So they, they seem to be doing verifications that, you know, online shop wouldn't do or that Amazon probably doesn't do. So there's a lot of interconnected systems. Um, and given that everyone is not local, right? So there is, you, you suddenly fly to Johannesburg and now you have to accept the, the payment, primary payment mechanism in South Africa, or you have to know about South Africa, what's the, the fraud risk, right? So you don't, you don't have it as easy as most online shops, for instance, that start with one country and they're on scale up. Um, what, what, is the, what was the biggest challenge with Cathay? So um, I assume you got this eventually done and you, you switched to, to Amadeus. Well, what was the biggest challenge that they had in their own system seen from an IT perspective? I think uh, at, the, at the end of the day, what I, what I think I came to realize is that, that the, the, the challenge, uh, okay, maybe to answer the, in, this in two parts. Um, sure. They, they had, uh, Cathay had traditionally come from a, from a from a setup where there was no central IT, right? So essentially, you had the different business units, and uh, they had um, and I never experienced that, um, but they had their own little pockets of IT, right? And then they decided, uh, probably with some consultancy in the background, right, that uh, sharing and pooling IT resources into a central IT department, right, would 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 economically make sense for them, right? So as a, the problem is now that um, because they had this very decentralized IT, but, but probably not the right governance controls in place, that was basically very messy, right? So you had like six, 700 applications, right? And everything was connected by either something which was sometimes a little bit more modern, um, but in a lot of cases, very very old, right? Like relics, like whatever, even using Excel files as, as interface and things like that, right? So everything pretty much kind of kept together by by Band-Aid and by employees who really know how to work around the curve of the system, right? And then suddenly you change the organizational structure and, and everything immediately becomes even worse, right? Because now the, the wrong people are in the wrong place and so on, right? But but um, so so that was the challenge for us this this modernization. But uh, since then, I have obviously learned a lot um, in 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 the job, and now I I believe that interestingly enough, the pendulum always swings back and forth, right? And uh, now we know that 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 technology, especially now in COVID days, technology is becoming even more pervasive than it ever was, 
right? So yeah. this whole idea, this whole notion of taking something as central as technology and putting this into one department in a company, right? And to say, this is where technology is, right? Is kind of really antiquated, right? So I believe that, that the biggest challenge in the long run, and not just for Cathay, but for many other companies, right? Is that this central IT model that they actually moved into was already not the right model, right? Because it was actually treating IT again as a cost center, right? Which means it's all about reducing costs, right? Bringing it down, economies of scale, right? Rather than using it for whatever, firing off a, a lot of tests, a lot of experiments, doing a lot of marketing or whatever campaigns and so on, being, being agile, right? Basically reacting to the customer. Right, so so that was not the right model for this. So and 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 as I as I was in cafe, um, I I realized that there was quite a very again very typical uh, a disconnect between the people who are actually making the decisions at the top levels of the organization, which are typically um, um, uh, uh, business administration majors, MBAs, and so on. Right, and then you have people in technology who are not necessarily at the same levels, right? And decisions are not necessarily made in the right way. So um, so that kind of, I would almost go as far in, term, in terms of saying hubris, right? Where you had basically the, 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 the top level and they were kind of residing in the penthouse and really coming down. Um, I think that is, that is the... That is the biggest real challenge uh, for for a lot of companies, not just Cafe. But that was also the problem at Cafe. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, there's been this saying that software is eating the world, and uh, it initially happened to only a subset of companies, and everyone else felt sheltered. As you say, you could put technology in, in a certain in the cost center, so you, you, it would be a part of the company that supported others. And I think that was working, and, and it was a good model for quite some time. But now that we realize that technology can go even further and kind of change the whole process of how companies, consumers interact. Um, we see this right now that we have so many banks in the US and everyone has a, has a mobile app. Um, and I think Hong Kong is, is way ahead of this curve. And it's, it has a website and it feels like, why would you even need a branch? And that's been going on for the last 10 years. But what's really interesting is companies like SoFi um, that basically say, well, why do you even need any of the branches, right? So why do you even need a brand name? Why don't we just get a banking license and uh, we are completely virtual? So we basically just exist in the cloud and then send people um, a MasterCard or a Visa card. And you, you see, like, from a consumer's point of view, you're like, well, what is this kind of the same thing? Why do I need to switch? But what's, from a business point of view, these new banks have a very different cost structure. They, they only do what actually makes them money. So either it's the origination of loans or it's the origination of mortgages, whatever they're really specialized in. And once they scale this up, they're much cheaper, right? Because they don't drag around all these other things, the people on the branches and the checks and uh, whatever back office has been going on for, for decades in the banks. And I think you see this in the, in the bank's example that have been going digital a long time ago. It feels like even them, which have invested a lot of money, have trouble in, in keeping up. So Robinhood shows this, um, and you're probably aware, that's a very, uh, it's a major app here that has uh, no transaction fees. And it changed the industry. It probably doesn't really have a business model, so it makes very little money, actually. But it seems to, it's like the third or fourth generation of technology, because brokerages were kind of the first that actually went online. And it was a big deal even to 2000 to have brokerage online and do it real time. 
But they've added this another layer and you feel like, well, this is the same thing. But then a year or two later, you feel like this, this mass of migration has started to um, something where technology comes first. And I think this is something that's surprising. Um, and a lot of the, I, I'm curious about uh, what, what you think, there, especially also consumer tech. A lot of things that we predicted and we were hoping for in 2000, they didn't actually happen. They happened, nothing happened, I felt like, in consumer adoption for quite some time. There were little pockets of adoption, say email, a lot of dreams that we had and as what the internet could do, they weren't really adopted. And then the last five to 10 years, and it's more consumer driven than, than in, um, driven by businesses, but certainly there, there's overlap. I feel like these things suddenly came true and it was kind of unexpected. Like that it was this weird cycle that we were in in the 90s, this hype cycle of things that would happen right away. They completely didn't happen. And then they just happened. And they happened even bigger than we could imagine in terms of how people um, accept the internet. And I'm, there's certainly psychology to it, but I'm quite, um, well, I'm bad at making these predictions. I always think these things would happen much earlier and I give up on them and then they just happen anyways. So I feel like this is just, it's, it's very difficult to do on an emotional level, especially if you're so involved with it, right? You, you want it to happen so much, but then it doesn't happen, you give up on it, move on to the next thing and then it actually happens. So that's probably the, the curse of the early adopters. I think um, it's funny. Funny you mentioned that. I forgot the, I forgot who said it, but um, I do remember uh, that quote, which says that humanity, or basically us, we tend to overestimate uh, the 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 significance of something or a change in the short run, but we underestimate it in the long run. And uh, if you think about it, that's exactly what you're saying, right? And uh, it also is exactly what what this infamous, famous uh, Gartner hype cycle model that they made a lot of money from, right? Which that actually reflects, right? Because if you look at the hype cycle, right? It basically goes up, right? Then it comes down because certain things that uh, don't actually deserve the hype because they get overtaken by the next hype, right? They basically dump into this trough of uh, disillusionment right and the ones that make it such as the internet obviously right they basically they go strong right and they just continue until there's the next s curve of innovation right so i think um i i, I see what you're saying and uh and i think it's it's it's, it's but even knowing this thing i i, I think we, we all know that right on a, on a on a conscious level but when you're in it and, and there's certainly emotional basis you feel like it's very difficult to detach yourself from it. Also, the problem is, you know, when we think about companies in 2000, most of them didn't make it. But there's a few who made it much bigger. But in 2000, it was impossible to tell who the winners would be. Ten years later, you kind of knew. But when that's for, as an investor, right, you're in that moment, and you need to make a decision. What are you betting on? Do you buy, like, an ETF that's for the whole industry? Or do you buy certain companies you have you feel like actually going to work out? And... and that makes it really hard, right? You, 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 we all know that we are in this cycle, but detaching yourself from it and making good predictions, I think, is really hard. Yeah, fair, fair point. Uh, I guess, um, yeah, I, I don't have a, a magic wand other than maybe what? getting back, maybe getting back to what I said before that that even though I'm a technologist uh, through and through, I, I, I think. Obviously, technology is actually not the, the whole thing. It's actually funny. Uh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, doing a little bit of a, of a, of a change at work in, 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 in my area, in my organization. So I'm at the moment, I'm working on a little bit of a deck of a presentation, right? And uh, one thing that I came across was a, was a an CN, CNBC interview uh, of Jeff Bezos uh, from 1999. And uh, maybe maybe you have seen it because it's actually pretty famous, right? And within this this interview, he talks about customer obsession and uh, he talks about technology and especially the internet, 1999, right? Like the big heyday and so on that you're referring to. And the phrase he uses is internet, internet, right? He says, I don't care about the internet, right? It's not about the internet, right? It's about the fact that there are eight or nine billion people in the world, right? I mean, that is kind of my interpretation on top of what he said. Um, and everyone is unique, right? And at the end of the day, if you don't deliver value to people that they generally feel is giving them something rather than being pushed down their throats with spam messages and so on and so on, right? Then success, economic success will almost inevitably happen, right? So, so the reason that someone like Jeff Bezos and Amazon is so successful, in my opinion, is not because of technology, not at all, right? He would have been successful 30 years ago with whatever, right? Because it's more about that, that he has some clarity without going into the rabbit hole. I'm taking a lot of things from him, even though I'm not necessarily... I anyway, shouldn't say that because I don't know him personally. So, but but from what I see at a business level, there are a lot of principles and thoughts that are really clear and that cut through the noise. Especially Amazon being like one million people or something like that, right? Which means it's it's all about scaling. So yeah. So at the end of the day, it's not about technology. It's about, uh, in my opinion, it's about the 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 human element. And if you look at this, then I think you have a good shot in predicting. Uh, maybe at least for the next three, four years, where certain companies will be going or not. Yeah, I think you onto something there. And certainly that, that helps. The, the, the problem with, with, with looking back and learning from the past, and I'm, I'm, I'm still exploring that question. I'm, I'm, I'm very open to, to ideas there. There is a lot of survivorship bias. And we are, there's this saying in the military, we are fighting the last war, we're not fighting the next war. Because the problem is we don't know the, the parameters of the next war, right? That the last war was, so to speak, in Iraq. And then um, it was hot, there was a desert, and there were insurgents. But the next war might be, I don't know, see, it's uh, Turkey or it's China. Very different terrain, very different people to, it's a state to, to to work against so that's the the hard part right so there is we, we know what was worked out for the for the generals so to speak and in the, the last wars economic or, or real wars but they are their strengths came out because they were in a certain environment and if the environment changes then the strength obviously will also change so that's the the, the devil's advocate part of this right it's hard and I'm, I'm you know part of this podcast what i'm doing is i i had a bunch of what capitalists um people who got really rich entrepreneurs on here. And you, you ask them about, you know, what, what is really that important um, thing where you feel that, that really, really made a difference. And here's the thing, there's always a story to it. I think there's a really valid and they're great stories. And I learned a lot from them. But on the other hand, they probably had 30 of those things ready to go at the time when they were starting or growing through the business creation. And any of those could have worked out as spectacularly as they actually, um, did. 
but the, the, the story, you, you, when, you, when you look at it retroactively, the story changes, right? And it's very difficult, even in your own mind, to, take, to keep these things apart. You might have a better hand on this. I, so, I so really just trying to trying to get the message correct that you're trying to say. So what you're saying is that uh, is are you saying that the complexity is that because the environment is constantly changing, right? Um, um, whatever you set up at a certain time time point, right, is not valid anymore at a later date, uh, at like one or one or two years later, which means you can't actually make. It's hard to make success sustainable. Is that is that what you're saying? Or yeah, that's part of that. Yeah, but the, the other the other problem I have is that we have the survivorship bias. So you, you got to look at um, three hundred. Well, we, we look at Jeff Bezos because he obviously worked out in any imagine his his business and his personal life worked out in any any way imaginable. But are we looking at the five hundred other people who who basically were in the same position as Jeff Bezos at the same point? Right, they all had the same amount of funding. They had a similar business model. They wanted to do the same thing. Now, I really don't know how many people had that idea and started an online bookstore. But let's assume it was 50 or 100 people with equal amounts of funding, maybe more. So some of them succeeded, some didn't. And I think those were, this is where the values come in uh, that Jeff Bezos definitely has. And that, you know, there's no, I'm not arguing against it. I'm not, what I'm trying to say is how much of these values, and it goes back to the philosophers, right? If you go back to the Greek philosophers, how many of these values should we learn, which I think 100%, but how many do we actually apply in the current situation? Because only a certain amount of those will be valid, but we don't know how history will play out, right? So there's a lot of things, other factors that we can't control that actually determine most of an entrepreneurial success. I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot, lot of the, again, obviously, we're all biased, uh, everyone is biased, and uh, the views that I have are definitely also biased, but uh, a lot of the recipe, I mean, there's two sides to it, I think. On one hand, um, a lot of the recipes, or a lot of the, 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 the principles and so on, that especially Jeff Bezos, uh, to take his example, is basically following, they are very public, right? This is not some secret source right that he hides in the cabinet and doesn't tell anyone right of course that's not possible right so on one who knows? hand who knows maybe he only gives us one side of the story yeah maybe but again right it's a it's a big company right and uh, and yeah I, I i personally don't believe that i'm not a i'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories so i think it's out there but uh people everyone has their own biases and maybe people reject some of some of these ideas that they read because they're not perceiving them themselves, right? Or they basically rule them out uh, emotionally because it doesn't, it doesn't align with their own internal value system and what they believe in, right? So that's that's one side of the story, right? Like if you actually watch closely, if you are willing to unlearn, if you're willing to challenge yourself, if you're willing to play devil's advocate, if you're not just looking for one option but maybe three options always, right? Then I guess your chances are going up, right? But then on the other hand, you can also take the other view and you can say success is a sequence of 10,000, 100,000, a million good, small little good decisions, right? In the same way that uh, uh, not being successful is also not normally not due to 
one decision that you made wrongly, but many, many smaller decisions, right? So there's also a little bit of luck in there, right? That you basically uh, somehow make the right moves so that you achieve this constant good decision making, right? And then at the end of the day, you end up in this kind of, I, I personally believe in this virtuous cycle rather than this vicious cycle, right? Imagine I always have this analogy in my head. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trail runner. I, I, I run a lot. So obviously when there's no COVID, then I do a lot of races, um, um, like amateur races. And um, so everyone is starting together, right? Like whatever, 500 people, 1,000 people, right? And then you have, you have these rest stops, right? Or the, 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 these checkpoints, right? And uh, the races that I do are quite long, so like 100 kilometers. Uh, and, uh, and then you have like a, like, a, like a checkpoint, let's say every 10 kilometers, right? And sometimes in the maybe less professional races, uh, the food is not running out, but it's getting more scarce, right? Uh, uh, the more people have made it through the checkpoint, right? Which means that the first one coming in naturally has the most choice, right? He can pay, basically pick the best food. Uh, it's, it's not that limited, but go with the flow, right? So, which means that that first person can even accelerate more than the people following, right? Because they don't get as much uh, good stuff in, right? So basically, it's it's kind of self uh, uh, self accelerating, if you know what I mean, like system thinking and so on, right? Yeah. And I think sure. this is ultimately what what you benefit from. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this is very um, apparent on the internet because once you have developed a mousetrap, you know, you you. It's more customers come into this monster as more you can obviously spend on marketing because you, you have better numbers than anyone else or you have lower transaction costs or you have just lower costs per employee per transaction. So I think you, you, you're absolutely correct there. There is a natural monopoly in all these things. And it's, it's, I like this running example um, because it's, it's, it's kind of not fair, right? So there's an inbuilt advantage for the first one and there's VIP runners who probably have even better food and even better um, rest stops. And, and uh, um, they might get um, a better system to warm themselves up or whatever it is, there is always a little advantage and it scales up um, eventually, especially with the internet. And I think this is why we see so little change and going on. Um, once a company gets somewhat critical mass, it's, it's you can't, Nobody can compete with that. Like nobody can compete with Google and in regular search. It's just not possible because they have so much data where users click on. You can make a better algorithm to find better search results, but it's useless if you don't have enough users. Or you will always be second or third, and you will never probably reach a sizable audience. Even Microsoft, you know, it's, it's the only one left in the game. I don't think they they they're very proud of what they have achieved so far. I, I want to continue a little bit with what's going on in these big technology trends, and I know you're your technologist, um, when you look at what's going on in the field of AI, and we had Stephen Schwartz on, who, who is a professor who started his own um, AI, artificial intelligence, started back in the 80s, uh, kind of uh, tried to build it, then gave up on it, realized this doesn't really work, and now he sees a lot of his theories um, actually coming back. Um, and. Um, his point of view as well. This is still just statistics. There isn't much to it. But on the other hand, we had we had uh, people like Mark Sarafim on, who is spending basically every waking moment um, trying to figure out how can we bring AI to the masses. What do you feel this this field of artificial intelligence actually offer? A in terms of 
what is the real potential and, and how it will be adopted, which is really difficult to predict, obviously. And then what is, is there like this, this end game that we all have in mind, you know, that there's an artificial general intelligence, certainly not the end game, but this is like a major milestone. Do you think that's something we will see in the next 20 years? Or do you think this whole, um, we're, we're in the middle of this hype cycle? So my, my view is pretty clear right now. And I would say that I'm definitely in the former camp, who basically says that uh, what we are seeing today and what we're calling AI is basically just statistics. And this whole movement from the AI winter to the AI heyday, right, is, in my opinion, completely predicated on cloud and internet and the fact that there is just so vast uh, um, uh, computing power available uh, rather than in massive breakthrough uh, in terms of algorithms or some kind of general intelligence, right? So that's my, that's my view right now. Um, in terms of the future, uh, given that, that, uh, that I have personally tried to move on uh, from the pure technology level and knowing whatever Amazon products inside out and so on, right? Which, uh, in my opinion, is not the main thing. It's, it's just a means to an end, right? So to basically look at more this convergence between humanity and human organizational principles versus uh, technology architecture, right? I, I just, my, my entire system is uh, predicated on the fact that the human being is always the master and the technology is always the tool. And we're basically constantly moving up uh, with this, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So basically our tools are getting better and better and better, but everything is predicated on the fact that it's always the human, be human being who makes the decisions at the very end of the day, right? And the AI is effectively, however sophisticated it gets, is ultimately just a decision support system. Maybe sometimes your 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 butler, your 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 agent, right? But the control always, always, always has to be with the human being, right? And I personally feel that um, it, apart from the fact whether we ever understand what what conscience is, what conscious is, right, and what makes humans human, right? I definitely hope that we never get to the point where machines can be the same thing, right? Because I, I, I'm just scared of that, right? So I think that humanity as a society, which obviously over the long run is ultimately about survival, right? Like surviving nature, nature catastrophes like COVID, right? And surviving other things. I hope that humanity will ultimately put a framework in place which controls that and which ensures in the same way how we control whatever uh, uh, atomic weapons, as an example, right? How we control this because ultimately it's, it's powerful, but it's also dangerous. But then on the other hand, again, I don't think that we have, we have made massive moves towards this kind of general intelligence uh, inflection point that, uh, that some people are um, uh, suggesting will happen at some stage. At the moment, I don't see it. Uh, I'm, surprised, I'm surprised you say that. And, uh, my view. I, I think you're absolutely correct. There's absolutely nothing. There is very little um, where we can say we, we approach that level of, of some artificial general intelligence, right? The, the definitions are quite 
all over the place there. I think what I found really interesting, and that was just a side note, is one of the, and I've quoted that before, one of the initial architects of GPT-3, um, who was very surprised about what actually came out of it, right? So you train that model and they did GPT-2 and then they just, they trained more data on it, but they were really surprised what came out of GPT-3 and the way it makes, um, it's, it's obviously just statistics and that would be the, the, the criticism, but on the other hand, it gets a lot of things right in terms of what, which things should belong together. Like it can write essays, it can perfectly translate things, it can do computer code. Um, it's only 95% correct, so to speak, right? There's 5% and it might be the important 5% that doesn't get right. Anyways, when he was really surprised by how, how many use cases he found and other people find for GPT-3. And then he said, you know, what's really missing is getting this to a wider model and, and eradicating the 5% errors. And then he said, humans are perfect for this. So this is why the Google search engine is so good because they get all the searches. This, this input from, from humans, what's useful and what's not. He's like, there's a really good chance that GPT-5, which might happen in the next two years, feels to any to anyone on the other side who doesn't know that it's an AGI, it feels like a real intelligence. Very few people will be able to distinguish that if they don't have a chance to interact and see, okay, this is a real person. Um, so they have to do it over, over say, a Google Meet. <laughs> and I saw something this, this morning um, where, where, where someone used an AI to like literally just make YouTube videos about other topics. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, obviously a YouTuber and they made, um, they used an AI to create new videos where the same person talks, right? So it's, it's kind of like a, like, a, like a Google Meet call. And it, but it's topics they never talked about. It's the same voice, it's different languages. And like, holy smokes, this is really cool. That's obviously, you know, a custom application and you can't just let it run. But it's something that's so close and I feel we're going to be there relatively quickly that we can't distinguish what's real and what's not. Um, so what's actually discovered, what's thought out by a human, which poetry is from a human, which novel is from a human, and which is from a machine. And we, what the trouble we're going to run into is how do we validate? And at, at one point, it doesn't actually matter. So if we say, okay, we're worried about the machines, but in the, in the end, the machines will have the same problems we have, right? They will have the same moral issues. They will have the same issues to organize themselves. And I think the worry is that we, we are like the ends, you know, the machines are like um, the humans to ends. So they, 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 you don't really matter to, to, or ends don't really matter to, to humans. But in the end, you know, they do to some extent. And maybe it, there isn't much we can do to stop that technology. And I think you, regulating it will help, but it only works if it's really expensive. So the nuclear energy weapons are, are really expensive still, somewhat expensive, so they're relatively easy to control because it needs to be a state actor or a couple billion dollars to actually get even get going and they need a big plan. So it's pretty obvious what you do on satellite imagery. But with AI, if someone spins up a, a cloud, a cluster, runs a couple of hundred computers, and trains a good AI in China, nobody even knows, not even the Chinese state will know. So it's pretty difficult to control. So it's a, it's a, I, I, I see what you're saying. And of course there are, certain things that come into my mind, like for instance, uh, uh, the Turing test, right? Where, where someone said long, long time ago, right? Like if, if, if you pass this barrier, then this is basically proof for general intelligence, right? And if I'm not mistaken, that Turing test has already been passed by, by a machine, right? Yes. So, but then you can ask the question, 
where did, where did this absolute statement come from, right? How did Turing know that this is actually general intelligence? Obviously, it wasn't, right? Obviously, it was the wrong test, right? So first of all, questioning that. Second one, um, you said that uh, deep fakes, right? That's what you basically talked about just now, right? Um, so actually, very good point. Uh, we, we talked about the other day, right? And I think it is absolutely crucial, given that... Uh, the tools are getting so much better, but not with general intelligence, but just in what they can represent and how they can be rendered and so on, right? That they're basically eff effectively fooling human beings, right? Because from our, how we are wired, we are not used to that, right? We are used to something that behaves and speaks and does things like this, right? Is a human being, right? It's not a, it's not a dog, it's not a rat, it's not a computer, right? But that obviously is changing now. Um, so I think what we definitely need as part of this whole regulation thing, and I don't know how that's going to happen because I, I know what you're saying about, you know, you know, everything which is not regulated, right? Like which goes, when there's money to be made, right? Then obviously it's going to happen. Um, so, but this separation between uh, uh, clearly declaring something that is actually not genuinely human as in comes from a human but has actually been fabricated right i don't know how something like this would look like but making it making it kind of discoverable or visible right that this is actually not human being but the other thought that comes into my mind is um number one if we say human beings are good at certain things and obviously everyone is marveling and no one has yet understood the human brain and so on and all of the things that we can do in extreme situations and so on and that human beings do every day, right, all over the world, right? And then you have machines, which obviously do a lot of things that humans can't do, right? So my question is, what is actually the big, the big incentive to make a machine do what a, what, what a human can do? what is what is the point right i mean in the same way that we don't want to go back to to taylorism and winslow where you had basically 100 people at a factory line and they were basically just taking one thing and moving it to the other side right which obviously you don't need a human being for that right so so people don't want to do that because it's inhuman right what's the point of putting a lot of money into making machines behave like a human what's the point Right, and if you think about these deep fakes as an example, right? I I would say there's no there's no net positive effect of that, right? So I don't see any positive effect in someone uh, uh, creating a fake uh, Tom Cruise video that I saw the other day, right? Uh, and and marveling at this technology uh, 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 achievement, right? What's the point, right? I think yeah. it's ultimately. Uh, uh, someone will basically misuse that, right? To basically lead people astray. And then I'm wondering again, what's the point? Why Why do we need that as humanity? What's the point? Who, what does it give you? What does it give me? Let me, let me try and answer. Um, <laughs> I know it's going to be hard to convince you. Um, so one thing that, that that's interesting is that the definition of what's what's human or what's inhuman keeps changing, right? So if you, if you go back... Um, 580 and say a certain farm board is human or inhuman, you would get a different answer. If you go back to the times of the Renaissance, the answer would change. You go back to 1900, so the, and, and you go back to, to a couple of years ago, 20 years ago, uh, just, just over the other side of the border in China, or the not so real border anymore. 
you you would get a different idea of what's actually human and what's okay. I mean, we a lot of people think, for instance, this is not a value judgment. I'm just saying, a lot of people believe that most employees in China are kind of slave labor. That people who make our iPhones, right, in the U.S. and uh, Apple sustains a lot of criticism for this, justified or not. Maybe maybe it's completely unjustified. Uh, and that's so. That's one thing. And then the other part. We, we and I, I, mean, I kind of like that we disagree about that because I think we can we can get to the bottom of this better. Is the real superpower that I feel in this world is productivity growth, and productivity growth is this thing that is typically driven by technology. There's other inventions that you know philosophy I think is also technology if you want to define it so so broad. Whoever wins um, that game of productivity growth wins the world. You win the wars. You win. Um, development of your state. Um, it's always, in the end, coupled to productivity growth. Yes, malls play a big role, but malls often play a role in order to drive or disturb our productivity growth. And that's long-term, the thing that really matters. And what seems to be happening is that the opportunity we have with AI, and obviously we're not there yet, but the idea is that, and I think it happens in social media a lot, is that it, it gives us better decisions. So we, we have suddenly an army of not just 10 billion people, we have an army of 100 billion, uh, trillions of people, so to speak. But they're not people, they're, they're not even full intelligence yet. But they can make recommendations and they help us make better decisions. So they kind of pre-decide for us. Obviously, there's a lot of risk, right? So like in social media, we see this very well. We all have like lots of different AIs inside Twitter that Twitter runs for us. What Twitter does basically, it pre-selects content that Twitter things and the AI at Twitter things a little customized bot there that is good for us. A good in the sense of it's, we might engage with it. It might, you know, good is, Twitter has unfortunately a very bad definition of this. They, it might be really harmful to us, but we would engage with us. Um, or we would engage with it. And I think this is the real power of AI. You have this army of um, very low cost, even free, because you only train the AI once and then you can basically run it for free. You just need a little bit of electricity, it's very fast. And you suddenly go from 10 billion employees, so to speak, you go to trillions and trillions of employees for a fraction of the cost, which whoever comes up with this first, might be China, the US, Germany, whoever does it, or Japan, they have this amazing productivity growth. No, and um yeah, good, good, good point. Uh, let me let me let me talk about that because it also touches on a, on 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 another uh, I I don't know belief or principle that I that that is pretty central for me uh, and my work and whatever I do um, outside of work is this uh, this whole concept of a feedback loop, right? And uh, I we might have talked about this pre prior to that, uh, but uh, there's there's uh, something called the so-called UDA loop. So UDA stands for uh, um, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act, right? So it's basically a loop with four phases, right? It starts with observing something, right? Then you get you put it into context, you put it into your worldview and so on, whatever you observe, right? Because you're not like a toddler, which is basically a clean slate, but you obviously have your history, you have your beliefs, you have your, your, your priorities and so on. Then you come up with a couple of decision options uh, that you weigh in, uh, implicitly in your brain in, in, in split seconds or macroseconds, and then eventually you act, and then ultimately you observe again, right? 
and that and that loop is is so central to our lives and it might even basically define humanity in general right so that this principle is very important for me right so now um the most important phase of the a loop very interesting backstory uh, a guy guy called john boyd uh, who was a fighter pilot in the korean war in the us he basically was pretty much the most famous fighter pilot in the us right and he he was basically uh, claiming that he could take anyone down within like 30 seconds or 40 seconds of a dogfight right like at least get them into a position that they were basically considered to be uh, 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 dead or shot down and um and this guy eventually became almost like a philosopher right where he talked about these feedback loops and he combined with a lot of other theories and so on right so john boyd uh, quite interesting stuff so but anyway um the orient phase is the most important phase of this loop right because it takes all of your observations which is just readings from the outside right it's basically the algorithm right it's the brain ultimately right and then ultimately you do an action so now, how does AI fit into this, right? AI, if you say that orient this important phase, let's say we always want this to be in our to be our brains. We always want humans to basically execute that specific phase, right? The ultimate decision, right? That means that AI could only be on the actor side, right? Like once you made a decision, you use some kind of AI to basically execute the decision on your behalf, right? Like when you talk to Siri. Right, then obviously a lot of button pushes you don't need to do, right? Because Siri or, or Alexa is doing it for you, right? And the other side is to basically use AI uh, uh, before the orient phase, before the stuff comes into your brain, right? And um, I actually hadn't hadn't thought about that, but now that you mention it and the whole Facebook and uh, bubbles and and filter bubbles and so on, right? All of this, all of these conversations uh, that that happened, um, I think that. If you manipulate the information that goes into human brain by filtering it according to some principles, right, which might very well be biased, right, then implicitly you're you're manipulating this decision phase of a human being, right, which is which is my opinion is really bad. But if you put the AI on the other side and you say I'm basically deciding, I'm curating my own feeds. I'm basically taking in stuff, whether it's from the left side, from the right side, right? I basically thrive on diversity, let's say, right? And then I make my decisions and then I use some crazy robot to basically do this on my behalf, right? And save me a lot of time. I see a lot of value in this acting side. I see a lot of danger in this reacting side like the likes of Twitter and so on, the likes of Facebook and so on, right? I, 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 can, I can see that the, the danger is, 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 very, is very strong and adamant. Um, and I think it's something to, to definitely worry about, especially in trying, you're figuring out how biased these algorithms are. And everyone's biased, right? The, 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 the King Solomon was biased um, to, to a certain set of values. Um, the, otherwise, you can never make a decision, right? You always have an, an incomplete picture, and you've got to use your bias, which is prior knowledge, in order to actually arrive at a decision. Um, and it's always biased, so to speak. It's something where you want to create a little bit of a utopia perspective, if you want to call it that way. We all have this idea that we, be, that we make better decisions, we create a better utopia. And I think that's true, actually. But the definition of a utopia varies from human to human. 
And I think it's really, I didn't know we, could, we, we would arrive at this today, but I think when we talk about these filters, and that's already happening, has always been happening since, you know, the, book, the books were printed, or even before this, you know, there were only certain stories being shared, and uh, all the Old Testament was shared only um, orally. So a lot of things were left out. Why were they left out? Well, because we only wanted certain things to be transmitted. Other things you fell out because either the audience didn't like it, or maybe the, the person who taught it didn't like it. So these, this, these filters were going on since we have a civilization. I think it's to an extent even true for animals that, that nature filters out certain effects. Um, so that's what's always going on now, so obviously on steroids. But the problem obviously becomes, and you, you're absolutely touching the most interesting point there, is what happens to free will? And I've been um, going back on this um, for many years now is you, you, you do have, we all think we have free will and we are convinced of it, right? But there's so many experiments, and you can endlessly repeat them, that if you put people in front of different information and do this consistently, and within a social aspect, so you, you manipulate the people around them and trickle in, we call this propaganda, and Eastern Germany was very good at this. It ultimately didn't work for Eastern Germany. But it, it, in, if, you, if you narrow the picture a little, it's extremely effective. So you can change people's free will quite a bit. And then you go into the second question, that's just on a political level, you go into who, what makes us human, why are we the way we are, why is our personality the way we are, why do we behave in the way we are, why do we, why do we have children? All these things are put in into our mind at the time we, are, we, are, we arrive on Earth, right? So the question is, if you really take that apart, and I think this, this we, we can't really finish this today, but if you take this apart, I would love to do that. For me, it has become harder and harder to really justify this free will. I want it to be there. Like, I, anything, everything in myself is, is screaming for that is free will. But once you go to the, to the actual actions of, of, of humans around me and of myself, there isn't that much left. Okay, so, so I think... Um... Obviously, the, the whole discussion about free will uh, comes comes ultimately back to what is general intelligence, what makes humans human, and so on and so on, right? And um, and uh, maybe 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 what I would say is that um, free will. If if you ask people what free will is, it, they would probably say. The, the, the ability to make my own decisions, right? I mean, I'm just sure. putting this naive description out there, right? But as you said, if we are saying, according to this feedback loop, that the kind of decisions that you do make is kind of correlated to the, to the kind of information that you do consume, right? And if the information that you consume is manipulated, then your free will will not be there because then your decisions will be biased and manipulated too, right? So if well, you follow, it's not manipulated. Like say, say, it's just a random piece of information. Not, not. There's no bad actor. It's just a random piece of bad information. It also changes your free will. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but that th that kind of implies that you are not actually in charge of controlling and curating and kind of in a, in a rare space of what you're actually consuming, right? And I think this comes back to what humanity actually is, which means that we can actually think about ourselves at a, at a meta level, right? So we can basically reflect on our actions, right? And we could say, you know what, if I compare myself from 2021 to 2018, right, then I see that in certain areas, I'm, I'm not actually doing what I 
want myself to be doing right in terms of whether i basically uh, whatever do enough sports or do this or do that right so you're basically you're reflecting on yourself right and uh, i think this is obviously what sets us apart from from non-humans right machines animals and so on so i think what i'm trying to say is that you have you have you have, i do believe that you have control over it and uh, on on one hand everyone is always talking about the doom and gloom of social networks and all of these uh, metastasis and all of this manipulation and so on right but then on the other hand you can also say that the only reason why social networks exist is basically the existence of the internet right and the internet has also brought a lot of other alternative information sources that coming back to what you said before that didn't exist at king solomon times right or uh, 200 years ago when basically people were actively suppressing certain levels of information because there was only one newspaper or there was no TV and so on, right? Now, yes, you have these manipulative actors, right? And I, I maybe you read about this recent scandal thing with Google who fired two, two members, two prominent members of their uh, uh, ethical AI team, right? And which basically raises this conflict about making money and ethics and so on, right? But what I'm trying to say is, there's also a lot of other options on the non-doom and gloom side that we have that people didn't have 20 years ago, right? So I think it's all about, you have to be aware of it. You have to think about it, right? You obviously have to be educated to be aware of these inputs being very relevant to you, right? And then actively try to manage it, right? And if you don't do, then of course, I believe that your actions will be partially manipulated. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think there's a lot. There's lots to it. Now we, now we hit the, the the tough questions. I want to hit you with another one. Say again. So, <laughs> I've been asking lots of people this. It's it's a question we cannot solve, but it's it's a lovely thought experiment. The question is, if we are in a simulation, and uh, the argument goes like this. You're probably aware of this. Is if we are not alone in the universe, which seems to be the case, right? So there seems to be so many other planets. There must have been someone who's slightly ahead of us, only if it's a few hundred years. And if we basically simulate everything, we simulate um, video games, we, we, the, the second, like, like any human, basically what's going on in our brain is basically any abstract thinking, simulating actions you would take, then you figure out what, what, what is the outcome, and then you decide, and that's the reflection point, which action should we take. So I would, the, the second assumption would be that if there is another civilization out there, they would have figured out a way to simulate um, an environment that resembled kind of matrix style the, um, the environment. Um, may that be like in the, the 90s in the matrix style or any other um, any, um, part of the universe. Do you feel, and, and the question is, if you say yes to these two assumptions, then we almost have to be guaranteed in a simulation irrespective of we feel that's that's something we can see or not what are your thoughts on this okay um so from the logical okay i guess i'm i'm torn on the question whether i believe that this exists or could be possible right and i think following that thought experiment uh, i think it could theoretically be possible, right? That someone is manipulating us and everything that we see around us, right? Is effectively made up, right? It's basically an intricate 
game world, right? Which is completely someone's PlayStation. Exactly, exactly, right? But then, number one, obviously super complex, right? But then again, maybe I just can't comprehend it with my human brain um, because there is some outer intelligence there for which it is not complicated, right? For which all of this stuff is basically pretty simple and normal, right? But then on the other hand, I could ask the devil's advocate question, uh, so what, right? If right, that, if, you, if if that, that, if that can't jump to that conclusion, that's that's correct. But in order to let the thought experiment run, no, you can't jump to the conclusion. You're obviously right. It doesn't make a difference, probably. Yeah, yeah, that that's the point, right? If if someone said, okay, um, because this 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 beyond this matrix, right? We have some kind of limitation where basically someone has created a boundary for us, right? Someone has said, okay, that's the end of your world, right? You can't go beyond that, right? You can't make a certain decision. You can't actually poke the poke the shell and look outside, right? That's not allowed as per the rules of the simulation, right? And um, if we get to this point where we actually find that, right? But we, have that, that. but we have that. That's the end of the universe. Currently, there's no information we have from outside the universe. Um, this theory is plenty but we don't have real scientific observations from outside the universe. Well, we don't even know if the universe actually exists. We got the light from billions of years ago. It might be, might not exist anymore, so to speak. We just haven't gotten a message yet. And what's really interesting is that the Big Bang, when you when you look at these Big Bang descriptions that we have, um, again, we haven't simulated it, but we have gotten pretty close, is that the whole universe was only the size of a fingernail. Yeah, yeah, but no, I, I know, but my, 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 I guess my, my point is, right, Let's go back to our East German uh, roots, right? We know that obviously that wasn't the matrix, right? But it was obviously kind of remote, centrally controlled in a way, right? So there was another, uh, another basically body uh, uh, organization which controlled us in a certain way, right? And we knew the limitations, right? So for instance, one limitation is we couldn't travel to a lot of other countries, right? So we actually felt this limitation every day, right? And uh, I'm all, all I'm saying is if we do live in a matrix simulation right now, I'm not sure which limitation we are feeling. The fact that we don't know what is beyond the universe or how big the universe is, right? That is not necessarily a limitation for me. There's no one stopping us to go to Mars as an example, right? There's no one stopping us, technology allowing it, right? To send something even further away, right? So it's just our own development limitations that we haven't gotten to the stage where we have whatever batteries and technology which can do all of that stuff right but at the moment i don't get the feeling there's someone saying okay stop until here and that's the end of the game the, the field right and as long as we don't feel this limitation and as long as i think we are empowered to make the best of humanity such as you know world hunger and all of this kind of stuff we have all of the tools i think if we want to right then I couldn't care less, put it this way, because I don't know, I can't decide. And um, again, living in the here and now, if there's no immediate threat to humanity, apart from climate catastrophe and so on, which is obviously self-inflicted, I would say, rather than uh, someone bringing it down on us as part of a simulation, right? Then I don't really want to spend too much time on it myself, thinking about that because it's basically a little bit pointless. In a way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you take a very, um, how do I say that, naturalistic view on it. Uh, you're absolutely right. But the, the, the beauty of this, this thought of experiments a little bit, if you, it gives you a way to uh, 
to think about the what if. There's obviously no no technical way, definitely not in our lifetime. There's not going to be a way. We, we might, even if you see aliens, it doesn't say anything about the simulation. We can't solve it during our lifetime, right? So that's something we can we can hopefully transmit into our version of the Old Testament and transmit it to the next generation. And they keep doing this for a couple of thousand years, maybe one day we will figure out the limitations and we can actually test them. Um, I might not, I mean, nobody nobody knows if, if just this is the first limitation usually used to be Earth. Now we went to, to the moon and we're probably gonna to go to Mars and then we're gonna to go to all the other planets in person. But and everyone can do it probably very soon, hopefully. Um, Maybe the universe is what we see right now, or maybe there's 15 other layers of, of, of onion around it, and all of these could seem like a simulation, but actually you have to get to the 15th layer, the 1,000th layer, whatever it is. But, but that's exactly the point, right? If you assume that there's an intelligence out there which is more advanced than us, right? And if you assume that, which a lot of assumptions I understand, if, if, if everything is evolving, we are evolving, but the intelligence is also evolving, right? Then we would probably never find out right because as you said right they would just basically again thought experiment they would just reveal additional layers of the story right just basically switch to the next page right and if the book is finished then you just write a new book right and you create you show the next layers of the onion right which is all made up right so again if they are really that advanced and simulating us right then they would never allow us to basically find that out they would just basically create story after story after story that's that's a way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, very different question. Have you have you ever watched that show, Blacklist? Blacklist. Blacklist. Yeah, the Blacklist. It's a it's no, a no. syndicated TV show in the in the US. No, I haven't I haven't watched it. No. I only I only um, discovered it a couple of weeks ago. It's it's it starts like a typical network television show, but it gets really good. And there's one character um, called Tom Keen, and um, you, 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 should, you should look him up. Okay. Tom striking, striking resemblance with Tom Keen. That's the fiction, very fictional character in that show. All right. Okay. I will do that. Yeah. Blacklist. It's something that I did it just noticed. Anyways, Nick, um, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for doing this. I know uh, you're really busy and it took us a while to pull this off. I hope we can do this again and uh, talk about free will a little more. It's yeah, it's it's exciting. First time for me. Thanks for thanks for having me, of course. And uh, uh, it's good we we saw it through. But yeah, let's um, let's do that again. I think uh, we can we both can talk a lot about things if we want to. Yeah, hopefully hopefully someone will listen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not just us. Anyways, Nick, thanks for doing this. Take it easy. Talk soon. Have a good day. Bye.